Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Investor Lab Property and Business Series. And my name is Goose. And my name is Charlie. And we are so excited to be chatting with you today about something that we are both extremely passionate about, and that is defining property as business models and how they interrelate with each other. Is that right, Charlie? Uh, absolutely. This is one of the topics that I think is most important for business owners to understand because I think they're going to be uh, amazed and then also all of a sudden get it because there's so much overlap between business models and property models. And they're kind of the same thing to a degree. Well, I would even venture a little further and say they are exactly the same thing. You know, like real estate is a business. So it doesn't matter whether you, you know, are buying a $250,000 buy and hold project or whether you're trying to do a, a $20 million development. It's all just different business models. And I think that it would benefit anyone at any stage of their journey, regardless of whether they have experience or not, regardless of whether they're a business owner or not, to understand how to think about real estate as a business. And as soon as you can understand that and start to understand business terminology and how to apply those, transcend those between different um, industries, you, you're going you're to see the, yourself advancing, your knowledge advancing, and also your profits advancing once you start understanding that too. So I think it's critically important that we cover this kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I'll absolutely now. So what are people going to get from this episode? What are we digging into? Well, we digged in. We dig, digged. We dug into quite a few. In, into quite a Figured. few. <laughs> we we um we covered a lot of ground. I mean, like we had a bit of a framework which we completely we went off piece from uh, pretty early on. But we covered important stuff like a bit of an Eisenhower matrix around active, passive, cash flow, and growth, and understanding how different strategies fit onto that kind of Eisenhower matrix. We also discussed the three distinct phases in every property portfolio and the importance of understanding how to know which strategy is going to be the right piece for the right time in your journey. We talked about negative gearing. We even talked, we didn't just talk about anti-negative gearing. We talked about pro-negative gearing, but when and where it fits, which I think is a very interesting part of the discussion. Are we the only property podcast in Australia that isn't bashing negative gearing at the moment? I think we might be. Well, I don't know. I don't. I don't know about that. But I would hazard. I would hazard a guess to say that we are the only property podcast in Australia that is prepared to tell both sides of the story. And I think that's a unique perspective because negative gearing can work. As much as I'm anti-negative gearing, it can work at the right time in your portfolio. But we also talked about where heaps of all this other stuff fits in as well, like flipping and small developments, subdivisions, and what else did we cover, Charlie? Because we hit a lot of ground here. I think the main thing that we really nailed in this episode, and I think what people can have a look forward to is just understanding the different types of property business models and where they can fit. Yeah, 100%. Exactly. And how you can, like, it's really important if you can understand this information, you're going to be able to start actually moving a lot faster and a lot smoother and have a lot more fun along the way. Because remember, life was meant to be easy, easy and business was meant to be fun. And if we you can kind of take some of this stuff away and then apply that in that way in your life, then we've won. Absolutely. Let's take people into the episode. Let's get stuck into it, guys. Um, so if you like this, which I'm, I'm certain you will, if you, no, let me rephrase this. If you don't like this, can you personally reach out to me and let me know? Because uh, highly unlikely that I think that's going to happen, but I'd love to know who you are so that I can meet you. Now, if you do like this though, what I'd love you to do is share it, rate it, review it, do all the good stuff because there's a lot of dynamite in here that's going to help people. And if you actually want to help other people, which I, I'm certain you do because everyone does want to help other people, then please share it around. You know, Share the love. We do this 
We do this podcast because we want to incite positive change amongst our friends, our peers, our family, our community, and all of that kind of stuff. And if you're listening to this, you are one of them. And I encourage you to do the same for the people that you love and care about as well. And of course, if you want to find out more about any of this kind of stuff and of course how to contact us, get books, all of that kind of stuff, free resources, just head to theinvestorlab.com.au. It's a treasure trove of wealth and wisdom. Get into it. Without further ado, look forward to seeing you on the inside. Hey guys, welcome back to the Investor Lab, the property and business series with my mate, Charlie. Charlie, how are you today? I am excellent, Goose. This has been such a fun series to make. Um, got some feedback from episode two that we released in this series. And I'm just so happy people are asking questions about this stuff. I think so many business owners are curious about how this side of the equation plays into their lives and ultimately where they want to end up. Yeah, look, totally. I think it's um I think there's a couple of things here that, that like business owners don't realize how real estate works, but just in the same way that a lot of real estate people don't understand how business works. They don't understand how over how much overlap there is and how and actually how to use each of these kind of two elements in, in life and in wealth creation to together to create a beautiful synergy and a beautiful harmony. Um, I think it's and I think it's really I think it's really fascinating because out of the business owners that I've worked with who've come to invest in property, they all share a lot of similarities in the way they think. And I kind of most of the time I have to put a little bit of brakes on to try and keep people on the right track, which is very interesting as well. So oh, it's hugely interesting. But this is one of the things when as a business owner you can start to connect the dots of how to think of it like business. Yeah. It becomes so much easier to understand. It's like decode what do they call it? The Rosetta Stone. It yeah. helps you decode, uh, decode the language. You can work it out, uh, which is really great. But what are we covering today, Grace? Because I, I know what we're covering, but it's a leading question. I'm excited nonetheless. <laughs> well, we are going to be talking about uh, the different types of business models in property. Now, and the reason we're framing it up like that is because a lot of people don't think about it like this. And then the reality is that a lot of real estate investors still don't think about it like this. And business owners also didn't think about it like this. But the reality is just in just as there is in every facet of life, there are different business models that operate in different ways, that have different requirements, that give you different outcomes. And if you choose the wrong business model, that is not going to be compatible with who you are emotionally, uh, where you're at financially and where you want to go, then you're probably going to find yourself suddenly in the wrong place down the line wondering what to do next. And so I think it's super important for us to create that framework to give people the understanding of what different business models are, kind of just a real high overview of how they sort of work and also where they might fit in an overarching strategy. I've got a really interesting example here. And I think this will be one for the business owners to kind of sum it up. I actually have a friend who went into software. He's Mm. just like, he loved computers growing up and then he got into coding. And then before you know it, he was making like little calculators and tools on the internet. Um, So guess what he decided to do? Start a software company. The problem is like he needs to pay his bills today. Like he doesn't have unlimited cash to build out massive software developments. So he's kind of ended up in this thing where he's in a business model that requires huge amounts of capital to make something substantial. Like he needs to take on debt. He needs to get investors. Like there's so many things he would need to do to build what he's trying to build. Uh, But again, that's not really what he thought he was getting into. He thought he would just be able to like, I don't know, jig up some tool and then get people to pay him recurring cash flow and like that would be how it would work. So it's funny that in them not matching up, he's actually had to develop like service parts of the business yeah. to support that to actually make it viable. 
And I think if he had his time over again, he probably wouldn't even have gone the software. It's just naivety. You totally. thought that was the way to go. Yeah, totally. And I've seen this time and time again. Like I've actually, you know, been approached by property technology companies that are in the same position. They're like, they've got amazing, they've got an amazing product or idea, but they haven't thought about how to monetize. And they haven't thought about like, well, how, and, they're, and they're like, how do we pay the bills? And now I literally going, uh, we, this isn't what we expected. How do we, how does this turn into cash? Like, and they haven't joined those dots. Vice versa, you know, like different business models at different points of time, depending on where you're at in your business journey, could be really, really good. So, for example, using that kind of like software or we'll call it like the Silicon Valley kind of model, like the J-curve type model where you might, you know, you've basically, it's going to cost you a lot of money before it makes you money. Kind of like an Uber. I, I like to refer to Uber in this case um, quite a lot because they're one of the few very, very large, fully negatively geared companies. You know, they actively seek to not make a profit, a net operating profit. But their whole model is built around like, right, just continuous investor funding and in, in continuous market expansion. Now, if you were to go and try and do that and you didn't have the full bandwidth of like how much funding you're going to need and how you're going to get funding and do all that kind of stuff, you're just going to get broke. You just... You'll like get a couple of dudes to drive a car for a couple of weeks and then wonder why you don't have any money. And it's this kind of, but understanding where that might fit. So for example, if you have already built a successful cash flow business, so maybe you've got a really great service-based business, but actually through the model of your service-based business, it doesn't actually carry much saleable equity, which can happen quite a lot. You know, typically, yeah, personal we, brands, the Michael Jordan model. Exactly, exactly. So if you've got a personal brand or look, a lot of a lot of service-based businesses, they could be high ticket service-based businesses, but if they don't have a recurring revenue model, if they don't have um, intrinsic asset value, uh, all of that kind of stuff, they're essentially, they're, there's not a lot of saleable value there. So you might have a really great cash flow model, but really not much equity. So if you have a really great cash flow model, and this same thing goes with property and we'll go into this, yeah, you're making heaps and heaps of cash flow, but then you're like, well, how do I actually turn this cash into equity? Then you could potentially invest in something like a SaaS, a, start, a startup. It, you know, obviously do due diligence on that, but you could invest in something that had much more of an equity basis rather than a cash flow basis. And that's how you can kind of interlace different business models and all of that kind of stuff to create a portfolio of businesses. It's the same thing with real estate. You know, I used to really think of them as separate things. But I realize now they're kind of connected, if that makes sense. Like investing in software in my business is kind of no different, although it is, than moving or investing into hard assets like property. It's all part of the same connective ecosystem. They might be separate businesses, but they're still businesses, but they kind of can play into that as well. But anyhow, we'll loop back into this because I think uh, understanding these is a really important thing. So Goose, before we go in deep into any of them, I'd love if you could just list out like what are the different uh, business models in property? Well, I mean, this isn't going to be an exhaustive list, right? There are, there are so many, just as in business, there are like an almost infinite amount of models and micro models and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Now, some of the key ones are like buy and hold, which is basically buy a property, hold it for the long term, never sell it. You know, it's pretty like sort of set and forget, quite passive kind of strategy. You've got negative gearing, which is uh, typically a buy and hold model, but it's a reverse cash flow model. And we can kind of talk about that a little bit because it's really interesting. It's important to understand the difference. A lot of people think, oh, I'm doing buy and hold, but there's different ways of doing that. 
Um, you got small development and large development. Now they're very different. They're very different. You know, two very different animals when you look at how they made up and what's actually involved to do them and where they might fit in your journey. Then you got stuff like flipping or renovating, renovating for profit, stuff like that. Uh, then you got stuff like dual occupancies. That could be things like duplexes or granny flats or any other way to create a, uh, an additional income stream out of a property. Um, and then you've got stuff like commercial, which is non-residential real estate, which is designed obviously to be rented out to businesses. And then of course, you've got different sub-segments within that, medical and industrial and all of that kind of stuff as well. And then you've got things like rooming houses. Now, there are heaps of other ones as well. There's no money down, there's options, there's all kinds of other things in there. And pretty much if you look at the landscape of business or shares or any of the other wealth models, you're probably going to find there's going to be a lot of the same thinking applied in the real estate sector as well. You're just going to be looking at different uh, levers that are going to deliver those outcomes. Yeah. And some people even blend them. Like I think this is something to highlight as much as you kind of mentioned earlier, and we use the software and service example. Like I'm confident there's people out there right now that are blending developments with renovating or oh, absolutely. buy and hold with negative gearing. Like there's ways to skin this differently as well. Yeah. And in fact, what you'll actually find as with, as with business, sometimes blending two business models is the way to make it even more successful. But in order to blend two business models, you need to understand two business models. That's the thing. Oh, that's a deep rabbit hole we could go into, but I want to nail these uh, property models first from there. So, <laughs> I mean, let's start with yep. one. You get to pick the first one. I might get to pick the second one. And we'll go through and talk through some of the ideas or understandings of it so that someone can get a bit of a feel. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, firstly, I actually want to take a little bit of a step back um, and just kind of set a little bit of a framework because realistically, there's only ever four frameworks. There's like a there's like an Eisenhower matrix of business and real estate. There is active, passive, and then you've got cash flow or growth. And everything, if you have a scatter plot, is going to fit somewhere on there. Some might be more active and more cash flow. Some might be more active and more growth. Or some might be you know, passive, growth, cash flow. You've got different kinds of ways to look at it. Once you can understand that, then you can start to really start to think about, okay, where does this sit in the Eisenhower matrix of you know, cash flow, growth, active, and passive? Now, the other thing to consider is that the right or, or like the most you know, financially beneficial model over the long run might not be the right one for you. Now, I want to lend a little bit of a story to that because someone that I know quite well who has been wanting to invest in real estate and all of this kind of stuff, I mean, thinking about it, one of those kind of people who's been dancing around it for about 12 months or so has gone and done all of these courses on small developments and look, looked into the distance at where they wanted to be financially and where they were going to potentially get the most returns. But they've never invested even in like an early stage uh, real estate investment. So what's happened is they've actually gotten all the, all, all the fuel around like, all right, let's go and do small developments. And now they're, they're frozen because they're scared because they don't have the skills, knowledge or anything to actually be able to execute on it. And so understanding this stuff is important but understanding where it fits into your journey, I think, is actually the most important. So, is there? I just want to make sure I articulate that correctly or reinforce it. Are you mm. saying that some of these strategies probably lend themselves to more like an advanced, someone who's got experience in real estate business and maybe had a few real estate businesses before? Hint, hint. I'm just kind of labeling the model versus yeah. there's some that are more suited to beginners. That is, I guess, you could, absolutely true. Yeah, so I would say that, you know, maybe if you bought a lawn mowing business or a yoga studio is probably very, very different than taking over something that's listed on the NASDAQ 
or ASX. Like you need a completely different uh, set of skills and experience to navigate that. Yeah, that is absolutely 100% exactly correct. You know, there's essentially, the way I see it, there are three phases to every uh, investor's journey. People will traverse the stages in different ways, shapes and forms and all of that kind of stuff. There are three phases. First phase is foundation, which is typically pretty simple kind of stuff. Now, we can go into the, we don't need to go into the mechanics of like, you know, exactly. But basically, it's like where you start out to build your foundation. That's why we call it foundation stage. And that is designed to be like specifically simple so you can cut your teeth, learn the ropes, low risk, good returns. And then the next phase is what we call the acceleration phase. And that's when you start maybe exploring slightly more advanced stuff, but not all the really advanced stuff, just the slightly more advanced stuff, stuff like dual occupancies or small developments, or you really start to like, okay, test your, the, push the extent of your, your knowledge and boundary. And then the final phase is where, you know, realistically, the most amount of money is made. And that's what we call the legacy phase. That's things like large developments and commercial ventures and all of this kind of stuff. But man, if you like, if you try and just go, well, I'm, I'm, I've never really invested in property. Well, I mean, hell, maybe you have invested in property, but maybe you still don't have the information, education, emotional capacity or financial capacity to do it. But if you try and jump ahead and go straight to the top of the top of the tower, you, you're most likely going to break, right? It's not that you won't do it very well and maybe just won't make as much money. You probably won't make any money. And in fact, you run a very high risk of going bankrupt. And I've seen this happen quite a lot of people that have overcommitted to projects that they weren't qualified emotionally or financially to complete. So it's very important. You're hitting a nerve here, Goose. You're hitting a nerve, um, hitting a strong nerve uh, that I still feel today because that was me. I went... Uh, the, what was the acceleration stage, the middle stage first? So the first property I bought, which I'm thrilled with the property now, I really am. Um, I bought something that was a, a dual occupancy. So this is something where we're doing a subdivision. Um, I had no experience in subdivisions or dealing with councils or anything like that. And what it feels like from my point of view, it's not so much the financial thing that was the burden. It's the emotional toll and co- constant unawareness to what is actually required. Yeah. Like every time we do something with this property, I feel like I'm getting hit from the side. It's like, oh, you need to need some section, something from someone at something that you didn't know about. Oh, that's another two weeks and another $800. It's just like, it feels like I wasn't as well equipped. And I, if I had my time again, I would probably start at the beginner phase and, and really look into that. And I much look like it if you're a business owner, it's buying a business bigger than you understand how to operate and trying to work it out on the fly. Yeah, totally. And the really interesting thing with that is if you just look at pure returns and just chase pure returns and forget about where you are on your own journey, it'll actually slow you down, which seems counterintuitive, which is why business owners have a propensity to, to try and scream ahead. They go, why would I want something simple when I could have something that makes more money? Like, let's just go do that. I already know how to conquer the world. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm smart. I'm strong. I know what I'm doing. I've, I've gone on this whole journey to achieve a lot in, my, in and of myself. But the problem is, if, you don't, if, you're not, if you're not equipped to deal with that situation, it'll actually slow you down. It'll slow you down for a couple of reasons, not just financially. It may or may not slow you down financially, but you're going to be like, it's going to be more stressful. And you're going to be like, thinking, hang on a second. God, this real estate thing is, God, it's complex. I feel like I'm getting batted around and I didn't know this was going to happen. And what I can actually do is, is slow you down. Now, every business owner that I've ever met wants to go faster, right? Every single one. They want to go faster, but the reality is sometimes to go faster, you actually need to slow down. It's kind of like it's the flywheel mentality. You've got to just start with small movements and then build up that momentum. And as that goes, 
that's that starts to then spin itself. And then you're going to be more empowered to make the right decisions. And then when you find situations where you're like, okay, hang on a second, this strange thing is happening, but that's okay. I've progressed in my knowledge enough to understand, you know, the risk or the implication or all of that kind of stuff. And it can actually make people go a lot, lot faster, but it's a bit counterintuitive to slow down and speed up sometimes. Hugely. And yes. it's funny you even mentioned the speed. It's like I, I'm used to operating at a pace in my small business, which is just perceivably normal. I don't think we're fast. That's just day to day. Like we have yeah. a certain amount of agility. Um, you realize very quickly how fast your business may be moving when you start dealing with like council or water companies or um, banks. And it's like bureaucracy moves at a different level than the small business owner. It's fascinating. Very, very fascinating. It's truly fascinating. And then, so we'll get into some models and kind of like what the differences are in a second. But I know we talked about this. I think we talked about this in the first episode in this series, but I want to reiterate it because this is a point that like it has to be driven home. It has to be driven home. Even if you only ever buy one investment property, it had like this needs to become the way that you think about real estate. Business owner, non-business owner, don't care. This is it. Real estate is a business, and there are two components always. There are the land on there is the land on which the business operates, and then there is the type of business that sits on top. And if you can understand that, it's like McDonald's, right? So McDonald's isn't isn't you know, the, you know, it's a tremendously high value company just because they sell hamburgers. Their hamburgers are cheap. They're a tremendously high value company because they own real estate and they put a cash flow generating shop on top and then they rent that out. That's it. And if you can understand that framework, you're going to then start to be, be able to think, okay, what type of shop business model, what type of, you know, operating entity do I want to put on top of my piece of land? Now, you might be like, oh, but apartments, they're not on land. They're on top of another apartment. Well, technically, they still own a piece of the land that they're on, right? So every, this, this, this idea transcends any of that kind of stuff. You've still got to think about what is the, the, the product market fit and what type of business do I want to own and what is the return going to be from that business and why does it, where does that fit in with my personal wealth scheme? Completely. I have a new appreciation of McDonald's as I learn more about real estate and just how genius what they did is, especially like, I don't want to say we're super advanced or anything these days, but to have the foresight of what it could be today by running that is just so much credit. So, so much credit. All right. So we've got two things here. We've got our Eisenhower matrix, which crosses over on active and passive. Yep. And then also cash flow and growth. Yeah. And then we need to layer that with if we're in a beginner phase or a startup phase. Yeah. If we're in an acceleration phase or if we're into, we'll call it the legacy phase, which is what I think you call it. Yeah. Okay. So even just through that, different options depending which one of those phases are with you. So let's get into some of these uh, ideas then and layer it with some of that to understand it. Totally. And I'm going to talk about it from a real estate perspective. You're going to talk about it from business perspective. How is that? Perfect. That's all I know. That works. <laughs> okay, great. Well, you know what was really interesting for me? And this is something that I didn't realize until, well, actually probably this year. Like I just hadn't heard about it. But it was um, websites being referred to as real estate. And I'd never, I was like, like I had this like whole like just meltdown. And I started, well, I'm like, what do you mean? Oh my God. It's like, it's digital real estate. And then, and then I started realizing just how much of these kind of ideas really transcended between business and everything like that. One of the big ones, one of the big ones that I was, um, 
that I was reading about and listening about was renovating. And I was like, hang on a second and flipping and, and all of this kind of stuff. I'm like, wait a second. So you can buy digital real estate, you can buy a website and then you can renovate it. You can flip it or you can buy and hold. And I was like, oh my God, I was having a bit of a meltdown. And like that, that model is a really interesting one because like if you break it down to its core basics, like, and let's just park real estate as park business for a second, buy an asset, which is in a dilapidated condition and isn't, and isn't yielding the greatest returns that it could based on the uh, underlying fundamentals of what it is, where it is, why it is. And then you have the skills or information to be able to go in and then rejuvenate that asset in some meaningful way to get a high yielding return out of it. And that's basically it, right? I know people that do that personally. That's their life. They just look for that. They look for people that are missing their skill set and then they'll acquire it and do their thing and then turn it around and flip it or they may hold it for cash flow, but like very, very viable model online um, and a very interesting and heating up space. I think it's going to become a much bigger and well-known uh, area of business in the coming years as well. Tony, but it's also a strategy in business offline as well. Oh, completely. Like I know for sure there's people out there today that are probably like they're experts in let's say fish and chip shops and I'll guarantee they're just out there looking for people that aren't running them well and they'll take them over, buy them, add them to the portfolio. I'm sure it's happening. Yeah, totally. And it's just the same. Like I can walk down the street here in Bondi and see an old rundown house, the paint's flaking, you know, and it's on a big block, right? And I've, there's a few of them around here. It's not like everything in Bondi is all developed. And like, they're like old rundown, like basically dumps, right? Let's be honest, right? And I'm going, wow, look at the size of that block that they're on. And I'm like, look at the quality of this house. I'm like, the, the facade's pretty good. Like it's maybe a Victorian or something like that. I was like, God, imagine if we bought that. Look, the, the amount, like what we could do with that would be amazing because we could either just give it a cosmetic renovation if it was structurally sound or hell. We could even redevelop the whole thing and turn it into a unit block. You know, there's so much option there for me with my skill set and knowledge and understanding to be able to go in and renovate it. And the, here's the interesting thing with that. That renovation will depend on what the goal is. Because if what I wanted to do was uh, renovate to buy and hold for cash flow, that'd be one thing. If I wanted to uh, renovate to flip, i.e. for just to make sure that we're very clear on that, that is, that is um, buy, renovate, and then sell for cash, I prefer the, I call it a flip and hold, which is renovate and then keep it and refinance, but you still, I'll hold it. Um, or if I wanted to do some kind of, you can even, here's another way that you can flip actually really interestingly. You can do DA flips. So for example, I could buy an old rundown dump of a house here in Bondi and I could get it, do pay for the development approval to do a, a five-story unit block, for example. And then I could just sell the, sell that, sell the rights to it. So I could do a DA flip so I could basically not even have to execute on the development but sell the rights to do the development. And there's all these different ways you can do it. But here's the thing, and this is where tri what trips up a lot of people because they look at the end result and they go, hang on a second, I can go buy this thing and then I can look make X profit and all of this kind of stuff. But what they don't re remember is you've got operating costs and you've got holding costs and it's a very active strategy. There's no way really to get around it. You've, if you're going to go and renovate, you've got a couple of options. Either do it yourself, which is going to take you a lot of time, or get other people to do it, which is still going to take you a lot of time because you're going to manage other people, right? Absolutely. Now, on top By the way, I, I love that you've thought about all this on a property in Bondi. You've really dug through the possibilities you could do here, which is great, but continue on. Oh, dude, it's so – you know what? When you understand how these things layer up on, on top of each other, it's it's – 
you suddenly start to see uh, fractal dimensions and you realize that real estate like is just this other, there's all of these different uh, variety to it. So now to that degree, any of these models, they're going to require operating costs and holding costs. Because if I go buy a dilapidated dump in Bondi, you might be like, oh yeah, there's a lot of growth in Bondi. There is a lot of growth in Bondi, but yields are very low. As in like the cost versus the amount of rent that you can charge for it is low. Now, if you're buying something that's dilapidated and run down, you're probably not going to be able to just put tenants in it straight away, which means that from day one, it's going to be costing you money, probably a fair bit of money just to hold it. That's not even considering what you might need to do to get it to a standard where it can give you the financial return. And then what you've got to consider is how long will it take me to get that financial return and then what happens if markets change or markets shift? And if you're operating on too fine of a profit margin, if you're operating with hubris or optimism, and this is where flipping goes wrong a lot of the time, is that people de- define what the end product is going to be, particularly in a rising market, and then the market will flatline or shift or some other kind of scenario, and then they'll find themselves with an unsaleable asset. In fact, around Sydney at the moment, there was a lot of people in, when the market was going up in Sydney bought um, bought like... $2 million com- like com- completely like condemned sort of sites with the idea of like rejuvenating. And now they're, now they're worth millions. They've spent millions. They can't sell them without losing money, which is fascinating. And this is sorry, one of the, to, sorry, to dig on. a little bit deeper here. It's fascinating. So first off, we'll, we'll nail one of these like flipping um, is what you're laying here. And this would fall into an active strategy. Oh yes, definitely an active strategy. Second component is if you're going to do any form of flipping, you're really saying that um, I would say this is probably something where you've got to have some runs on the board if you want to play in this category. This seems like an advanced um, or experienced user if you're going to be going into projects of this size. And then three, if you look at this here, is like the capital requirements you would need because of the low yields you've mentioned there, which is the cash flow, the property returns, Yeah, would have you need to be in a place where you're pretty well set up to cover that for a long duration? Because I, I expect, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but on a project like that, it could take years just to get it through planning and approval. Totally. Obviously, it depends on the scale of the project, right? So you can, so you could do a flipping project which might take you three to six months. Um, or you could, do a, you could do some more advanced kind of uh, flipping project, which might take you, yeah, a couple of years, you know, like, and that's the reality of it. And you're 100% correct. It is definitely an adv- more advanced strategy. But one of the biggest issues that I see is that people watch the block or maybe they've painted some rooms at their house and they thought that was really fun or some other such thing. And they think, ah, flipping's easy. We just go buy something, paint it, and then like sell it and off we go. But it's typically not. It's not that easy and there is a lot more cash involved than most people think, which is why it's such a high-risk strategy. Um, And that's, I think, a big piece that people miss. So the other end of it, you've mentioned the idea of a big kind of renovation or flip. We'll look at it there. There's obviously like much smaller ones. Like you might buy a small property on the Gold Coast that just needs a cosmetic reno. It's like, cool, new kitchen, let's paint some walls and put in some new carpet where it's not a huge process and you may not even need planning stuff. It's just cosmetic run over from there, that is a completely – it's still active, like you're still doing stuff, but because of the way less capital requirements and you can also probably get a variety of people to do it because it's simple stuff, you wouldn't need specialised trades or anything like that, 
that is a different level of that type of business model. You could probably execute that in a much different way than your property in Bondi. Totally. And in fact, that would be what I would consider to be a foundation level strategy where you're going to be able to test the waters. Now, typically on that end of the spectrum, what you're what your capital requirement is likely to be is going to be about $15,000. The time requirement to execute that kind of a flip, or typically that's probably going to be a flip and hold. Like you've bought something and then you've gone, okay, I can spend $15,000 on it, put in a new kitchen, new carpet, you know, car- I like to say carpet, paint, fixtures and fittings is very, very, it's the simplest way to renovate and it, and it gets the highest dollar value return, highest perceived value, lowest cost. That's the benefit. Um, now, the typical timeline to execute something like that might be one to two weeks. So your holding costs are mitigated and that holding costs are probably going to be, you know, within that 15 grand that I mentioned. The likely return is that you're probably going to get a dollar fifty to two dollar, depending dollar fifty to two dollars for every dollar that you spend, which is pretty good. That's what it should do anyway, if you if it makes sense. Uh, mate, you can even go as high, you can even get as high as three dollars, depending on what the scenario is. And you're most likely going to increase your rent by you know somewhere between fifty and one hundred and fifty dollars, depending on the location. So that end of the spectrum is easy to execute, and that's where we sort of see that it's a good opportunity for people to start testing themselves on a different business model, and start going, okay, well I bought something, that's one thing. Now, okay, let's me let me start getting a feel for how I might add value and what the returns might be. Now, you might do it wrong, and you might overcapitalize. You might spend fifteen grand and uh, not increase the value at all, and then but the capital risk is lower, and that's where you can really start to test into that business model and get a feel for how it works. So that's really interesting. I'll look at that in another way. I want to ask a couple of questions here because I'm, I'm interested in your perspective. So this is a strategy that's active for, let's say, three months. You, you're going to manage your little renovation or cosmetic renovation here. And then after it, once people are rented in, it goes to passive. Like you don't keep renovating it wouldn't the same even be, house. Yeah, it wouldn't be three months. It'd be like literally a couple of weeks. You could do a cosmetic for carpet, paint, fixtures, fittings should take no more than two weeks. I was, I was being generous. Yeah. <laughs> We're yeah. pretending like, you know, you've never done it before and- you maybe don't get some help when you want to do it all yourself. I don't know, but I, yep. I completely agree. You could do it way quicker if you're uh, prepared, mm-hmm. especially if you've got a settlement where you can align trades and yeah, yeah, do totally. all kinds of things. Uh, anyhow, what? so that's where it's active in the beginning and then it goes passive. You're just holding that one there, which I'm a big fan of, or you could potentially sell it after you've done the renovation. But let's pretend we're on this, this st- magical street on the Gold Coast and we've just done this uh, strategy and there's a house next door that's already renovated, which is a pure passive you just buy it it's done how do they stack up side by side like where are the differences you're obviously saving in the idea that you don't have to find trades or do any of the renovation Hmm. but what would you expect from let's say capital requirements or costs to to make one of these more or less viable okay so just to clarify basically two identical properties right next to each other on the same street one of them not renovated and one of them fully renovated yeah absolutely yeah. Okay. Cool. What you what the difference is the um, price to value ratio. So on the one that is uh, unrenovated, you're likely to get it for obviously a cheaper cost, and you're then going to be able to add value to it. The idea of adding value is that you don't just put money in and get the same dollar return. You want to magnify your wealth. Like that's the point. So if you spend fifteen grand and you can, you know, get two dollars for every dollar that you put in, that would be increasing the value by thirty. So you've doubled the cash you put in for that component. That's a very basic way to think about it. 
Now, if you buy something that is already fully renovated, you're going to be buying the end product value. So you're going to be basically paying for the commodification of what of, of the outcome, which is likely going to result in a higher cost and also subsequently a lower yield. Now, the lower yield will be um, because the rent will be in relation to the selling, sell price. And what they're selling is not just the paint and the kitchen they put in, but the convenience and the time and the stress. So there's a premium that goes on top of that. So the reality is you're going to end up with like a really great asset that you can just buy and hold and will probably work as long as the numbers stack up, as long as you're still getting enough cash flow to be able to pay for all the mortgages and all of that kind of stuff, then it can still work. And that can be a really easy way for people to get in. In fact, we have a lot of clients who say, okay, Goose, I'm just starting out. And what I really want to end up doing developments because it sounds sexy and, you know, and we get to do all this cool stuff and all that great. But right now, you know, I just want to buy something. I just want it to work. I just want to buy something and I just want tenants to move in and I just want it to just work because it's their first one or maybe even their second one. And that's totally cool as well. And you can still buy well with that in mind. And that would be then lending back to just the classic buy and hold strategy where you like find essentially a business which is working well, which creates a profit, which you know has a good customer base, i.e. good tenants, um, is low maintenance, uh, so you don't need to renovate it. There's like it's a good functioning business, but the previous business owner, i.e. the previous vendor, for their own personal reasons, has decided they don't want to own that business anymore and they've decided to sell it. Now, that sale can happen for a variety of reasons. It could be changing lifestyle, could be uh, changing in their, you know, in their family situation. It could be a variety of different reasons that they want to sell a functioning business. We, sell, we see functioning businesses for sale all the time, businesses that make profit, that have got good customer bases, good inventory, good systems, and people are just like, cool, I don't want to do this anymore and I want to sell. Same thing happens in real estate and you can buy those too and that's a really great way to get started. That's interesting. I remember looking at a couple of businesses for sale and my interest, my first thought was, oh, there's got to be something wrong with it. Why would you sell a good business? And it's like you try to translate into real estate, but you're so right that it's like people retire, they start new walks of life, they move loca- locations. Like, there's so many different reasons on why someone would genuinely sell something from there. Well, but I want to bring in another point here because um, this is something I've weighed up a lot more in recent times. And I'll use a can of Coke as the uh, analogy here, right? You can literally go down to your local Coles and get a can of Coke off the shelf in a bundle for like under a dollar easily. Like I've seen them as cheap as like 60 cents. Um, I don't drink Coke often. I'm just fascinated that this is how it works. But if you go to the service station and you go and buy that same can of Coke, but it's been in the fridge and it's on its own ready to go, you you might pay $1.50, right? The value is completely changed if you kind of do it. And I kind of think about these two in the same way of going like, if you're willing to, go and get the can of Coke off the shelf, take it out of its pack, put it in the fridge and then wait and put that little bit of work in, you can end up with a substantially cheaper can of Coke that's exactly the same as one you may have paid $1.50 for, but you sacrifice convenience. But here's the thing, right? And this is the thing that I think um, business owners particularly have to start thinking about. And I know this is something for me. For me, sometimes it's really better off just buying the can of Coke in the fridge at the servo because in the time I might have spent getting the can of Coke, putting it in the fridge, I would have actually got a better return in my business. Like this is something that you've got to layer in and thinking about is like, well, where do the returns actually stack up? If I can put that effort and energy into business, buying done assets might be the right path for you depending how active your business strategy is. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more because 
as as you pointed out, like if you're at the service station, guess what? The service station owner is making a profit by providing you the convenient outcome that you desire the most, and you're paying a premium for that. And there's a time and a place, like when you can exercise your skills to deliver a a more profitable return, then fantastic. But the key to success, and, and, and like the key to like meaningful, like large scale success. By success, I don't just mean money. I mean time, energy, fulfillment, happiness, you know, financial returns, all that kind of stuff is leverage. You want, you want more time in your business? You need to get more leverage. You want to create more money than you can do just trading your time for money? You need more leverage. And you will not find, I believe, you will not find a successful business owner in any, in any stream, real estate, um, you know, digital marketing, uh, you know, any of that kind of, that that doesn't effectively use leverage in some way, shape, or form. And there's obviously different ways you can do that. Now, as you pointed out, that you've got to lean into what is your highest and highest and best use of your skill set. You know, if you can make, if you've got an effective hourly rate of I don't know a thousand bucks or something like that, and and you know, doing digital marketing, for example. Maybe it could be heaps more, heaps less. And you can pay a tradesperson 50 bucks an hour to go and paint your house. And not only are you, know, not only are you going to be making money, like literally making money on the fact that you're not spending your time doing it, you're actually going to do it faster and do a better job realistically. And so, you, so there's a compound value uh, component in there as well. Just in the same way that, and we'll talk about some other stuff now as well, but just in the same way that if you were to do a subdivision, for example, which would be an ex, like a, a, you know, the second, second level, that'd be an acceleration type thing. You can go and um, study the council codes to understand the planning conditions. You can lodge all of the applications yourself because why wouldn't you? You can use a pen, you can fill out forms, right? You can do it. You're not dumb. You might lodge your own tax returns. I don't know. But I'll tell you what is a damn sight easier. Just pay a town planner. Just say, hey, I'm thinking about buying this. Can you do a town planning assessment on this? And if, if the cost versus the return stacks up, I'll buy it. And also, I'll get you to execute it because you do this all the time and you do this every day. And quite frankly, I'd rather have two one-hour consults with you than spend 40 hours trying to wade through paperwork and hope hope that I've done it correctly and get the application through council on time. That's the difference. Absolutely. And it comes back to what we said, it's like, you know, right models, and this was in a previous episode, but having the right people on your team, I mm-hmm. think in this business is a huge thing. And if you were going to do that uh, subdivision model, you would absolutely want just a boss town planner on your side because uh, that could turn into an absolute nightmare if you don't know what you're doing there. Yeah, 100%, 100%. And this is the thing is like a lot of people come to us, we we buy properties in pretty much every state in Australia, depending on what the market's doing and all of of that kind of stuff. And people often ask me, it's like, oh, so how do you you manage the projects? Like if someone has to do a cosmetic renovation or a subdivision or something like that, it's like, well, why don't? Like I don't. But what I do is I go and I vet and find the best people in that area that are specialists on that council code or specialists, they know exactly the right stores to get the best deals on the paint and they find those people because they're the ones that actually, they're the ones that are just like, their passion is what they have turned into their revenue model and you can leverage their passion to get you the result. You know, it's so, it's so much a better way, to, better way of doing things. Absolutely. 
And let's jump into more of these business models, Goose, because we've covered, all right, so, so far we've spoken a little bit about flipping. We've spoken yeah. a little bit about developments and then a little bit about a buy and hold. Correct. One of the ones I really want to make sure we cover today, and this would be the next one, is, is negative gearing. Yep. And a little bit into that because uh, popularized in 1985 and brought in as a way for mum and dad investors to get in the market without being hit to capitalize. And yes, I'm watching a lot of YouTube videos on the history of Australia at the moment during the pandemic. And that just happened to be one that crossed my path. That's fascinating. <laughs> That's great. Oh, fascinating stuff. All right. So lay it down. Explain negative gearing because I still think this is one that people think they know, but they might not know. Yeah. So I'm going to try my best not to just rant here because it's one of the things that I'm most passionately anti. So negative gearing as a strategy, I'll explain how it works and then I'll explain I'll explain how it works. So, te- so the, the way that it works is very simple. You buy an asset which produces less net operating income than it uses. Okay. So, for example, if you bought a five hundred thousand dollars house, and then the the you know the cost of the money, cost of money, so cost of debt, so principal and interest repayments or interest only repayment, whatever the case may be, the cost of money plus the cost of management, i.e. property management, plus the cost of uh, council operating expenses like rates and anything else that may be attached to it. It could be water bills and all of that kind of stuff. Um, Any of those kind of operating expenses, which is exactly what they are, amount to more than the revenue being generated, i.e. more than the rent that's coming in, there's going to be a shortfall. Now, that shortfall is going to be your loss and that will dictate whether it is positively or negatively geared. There's an interesting difference between positive gearing and positive cash flow too and we can kind of talk about that. So what a lot of people, the mistake a lot of people make is that they get sold on positive gearing, which is when you can make a technical net operating profit after tax deductions. So you might buy an asset which has a significantly lower uh, weekly operating revenue than its weekly operating expenses with a view that after you claim the tax back, that is uh, the negative gearing is actually the the tax benefit. But then when you apply depreciation on top of that, you can actually make make, make it a positive outcome. So you actually produce more net income. The problem with that, is it's got a delayed gratification component to it. So you may get a tax back, um, but it's actually going to cost you holding, like you've got operating costs along the way that you're, you're losing money as you go. Now, where this... To, to simplify that, I just want to really break it down because this gets so confusing. I was confused by this and I want to bring this to business because I think it will help people understand it. It's buying a business that's losing money mm. with the anticipation that it will make you money one day and somehow you'll net benefit from tax from losing money. Mm. That's the the whole concept versus buying a business that makes money where you pay tax. Like that's, the, that's the big yeah. way of, I suppose, simplifying it down yeah, exactly. into business. Yeah. That, and, and, that, so and, and that's a, per, that's a perfect summation. That is a perfect summation. And that's the way I like to think about it. That is literally the way I think about it. Would I want to buy a business that loses money? You know, and I use this analogy to try and really dumb it down for people as well. I'm like, if you, if you wanted to buy the milk bar on the corner and it was for sale, and it lost money every week. Why would you want to buy that unless you were a renovator and you could renovate the business or do something to make it produce a net positive income? Because when you lose money, yeah, you get tax breaks, but I, I, I would rather just not lose money. You know, I think it was Warren Buffett said the key to making money is just don't lose any. You know, and, and I'm like a clever guy. He's really simplified that into terms I can understand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally, right? And, and it's the same thing here. Now, the, the 
theory around it is that the theory around it is that you buy assets which will have a higher capital growth rate so that you'll have a profit benefit down in the long run. But as we, as we all know, there's a difference between profits and cash. Profits don't appear in your bank account. Cash does. And so the, what you can end up with is being uh, asset rich or you could have a high net worth and you could be cash poor. And in fact, one of the biggest risks with this strategy is that let's just say you buy a property and it goes up in value tremendously and you've got a million dollars in equity. Wow, I'm a millionaire. Fantastic. But you only have a couple of ways to access that, that cash, to actually convert that asset into cash. That's the function of business is to convert assets into cash. So as a business owner of a, of a real estate business, then you need to work out how do I convert that to cash? You've only got really a couple of ways in that scenario. You can either sell it and you'll have selling costs and all of that kind of stuff so that you can liquidate your asset, which means that you won't have an appreciating asset anymore. You basically call time, sell it to somebody else, cash out, off you go and try again. Or you refinance cash out. Now, to do that, you're going to have to say to a bank or a lender, hey, I've got like a million dollars of paper money tied up in my, my, my asset. I would like some of that in cash. Therefore, can you provide me security against that? Basically, can you give me a loan? And then I'll give you some of, I'll give you some of that equity and you give me some cash. It's a really simple way of doing it. However, if the cost to hold that asset is too high, you may not have the serviceable income to be able to accrue more debt, which means that you may not be able to convert the equity into cash by means of a loan. And so I see that as being a big trap that people can get stuck in. And in fact, the other thing, the other thing to consider with this, sorry, just, just one thing there, wouldn't that make it more negative? If you refinanced a property that's already negatively geared yeah. to make more debt on it based it, on the growth, yes. wouldn't it just push the yield? Yeah, yeah, you're increasing your debt, you're increasing your debt ratio. And, and so it can be, anyone who's read Good to Great, I consider that to be a bit of a doom loop. Like you, you're, you're consistently increasing your operating costs in order to, to, to convert your asset into cash, which any business that, that the only way they can convert their assets into cash by, is by increasing their operating loss. I mean, it just sounds, it's madness. And that's what I'd, I'd consider to be a doom loop. But there's a lot of people out there who suggest that it is a very good strategy the only time I can see um, this being a good strategy is if you are, for example, a surgeon or something making a million dollars a year and you have a, a, you know, an extremely stable you know, whole life situation and, and everything like that. But even then, it's an edge case rather than a, rather than a typical use case. And so, so extremely high income in a job, paying an astronomical amount of tax. So you're a, a very surgeon. Very secure job though. Very secure job. Yeah. yeah you're a high level government personal, although I don't know how secure that is anymore. Um, but it's like you would be want to be in an extremely secure job like a surgeon. You would want to uh, be making a lot of money and love what you're doing because you've got to put money into this. You want to want to keep doing this. That is the rare time that it will come up. Or possibly, I, I mean, I'm just thinking outside the box, you may do it on a property that you would want to be redeveloping or – but then that's more developing and that's just more well, about Well, let me, t- let me tell you about a situation that it can work when you're not in when you're not making a million dollars in income. Let's do it. The situation where that could work in uh, a portfolio in a way that even I would agree with it would be in a situation like this. If it was a later stage addition, it's 
firstly, one of the big problems is that people try and do this at the start, just in the same way they're trying to do flipping at the start and it's the wrong thing to do, right? They'll try and do this at the start because they get advice and they get told they have to save on tax. And as a result, they end up buying one, maybe two liabilities, which keep them shackled to their business or their job because they can't not work because they have to continuously feed the beast. Otherwise, the bank- Not to mention their borrowing powers has gone through the floor. Oh, yeah. You can't borrow any more money. You get capped out. So, your serviceability is capped out. You can't buy any more properties. You don't have that kind of you know, time, freedom, all that stuff that you really wanted. You have to keep working because you have to keep feeding the beast because if you don't feed the beast, if you decide, look, I don't want to pay this for a year, the bank will sell it and you won't have the asset anyway. So, it's a horrible situation to get into. But that's literally the first situation that 93% of property investors get themselves into. Like, that's it. 93% of property investors get stuck there because they stuff it up and do that from the first go. So let's talk about where it could fit because growth assets are really fantastic, right? As we touched on at the start, Uber is well, Uber's worth billions of dollars and it's negatively geared, right? But in order to be able to fund that, you need to have enough cash flow. Okay. So let's say you built a property portfolio that was producing a tremendous volume of cash flow enough cash flow that it could support you, your family, support the rest of your portfolio, keep the liquidity moving, but you can keep doing other projects. And then you decided that you wanted to, I don't know, buy a buy a, an apartment block in, bon, in Bondi, a four-pack or something like that, which would probably still be negatively geared even if you bought a four-pack. In fact, it would certainly be negatively geared even if you bought a four-pack, depending on your loan-to-value ratio, right? But if your portfolio was producing enough cash flow to be able to cover that net operating loss out of that that business and that part of your business portfolio and still produce everything else, then that's a time that it can work. However, the problem is most people don't think about where is the cash coming from. So I am actually I actually think that, you know, and the same thing goes like if you want to do a development or something like that, you've got holding costs. If you even if you want to do a small development, let's just break it down. You don't even have to think about like, am I going to build a unit block or am I going to buy a unit block or am I going to like start a big, you know, thousand acre development. If you wanted to buy one house and then subdivide that into two or three lots and build three houses on that, that's also going to have holding costs. That's a small development would be one into two, one into three or one into four. Now, the holding costs of that, that whole project may take 12 to 18 months. You're still, it's still going to be negatively geared. You're not going to be renting that out over that period of time. It's going to cost you money to hold it. And then, yes, you will get a significant return by a capital improvement by building three houses or subdividing and adding value. You get a huge capital return, but you must have the cash flow to support it. So negatively geared assets, really anything that's going to cost you money more than, it, more, than it, more than it's going to give you money in the short term. Makes sense. So, so kind of comes back to what we were saying at the start of this episode. Let's pretend you've got a service business. So I'm in, I've got a media company. We're in podcasting. It's a service business. Um, let's pretend we've got good cash flow business, which we do. And I say, oh, I'd love to build a software tool for um, podcasting, which it's been on my mind, maybe. Um, I know the costs of that are going to be deep. The cash flow from my service business could be fed into that. Yeah, to kind of make it work, like we'd be okay. Like there's no issue with that. So it's the same thing here. If you've got a, a good property portfolio business that is producing a good surplus of cash, at that time it could be the way to start thinking about Bondi assets or growth assets that are going to be negatively geared. Yeah, totally. Exactly. That's exactly right. And I mean, you know, there's a time and a place I believe for every every strategy, but it's really understanding about what that time and place is. You know, for example, commercial assets are very high cash flow assets. 
you know, tremendously high cash flow, but they also have a different risk profile. And you also need to understand where they fit into your portfolio. And I would suggest typically not early on, you know, like I would say they're probably just a little, a little later on once you've got a few runs on the board. Um, yeah, so I think I think I think the really understanding how and when to position these is the most important thing because you're right. If you started, if you just decided, I've I've started a podcast business, I've got my first one or two clients. It's great. The future of podcasting is going to be through software, not through service. Well, I'm going to create a. If you're producing a thousand dollars a month net profit, but it's going to cost you five thousand dollars a month in development costs for a software product. How many months do you think you can fund that software development product? Long enough for it to be successful? Probably not. Probably not. Not at that ratio. And this is the consideration you've got to you got to find yourself in. And this is often why you find you know mum and dad investors or or you know early stage investors, not even, not even mum and dad investors, early stage investors who try and jump the gun and they go, you know what? It's my first project, but I'm going to go and do I'm going to do a one into three development. And they might have the funds, they might have the capital to. Uh, pay for the buying of the property. They may even have the capital to pay for the buying of the property and also the subdivision costs and maybe even some of the uh, you know construction costs. But if they haven't fully costed it out and then also if they haven't factored in all of the holding costs, they can find themselves like eight months down the line going, I've run out of cash. I, I, I mean, I can see the ends in sight. It's only four months away. And when they get to that point, I've maybe I've made a net profit of two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, but it doesn't matter if you can't cross the finish line. You can get one month away from finishing, but if you can't find that cash, and I can tell you, if you get into a desperate situation, it's going to cost you a lot. You can you can always find money, but it's the price of money that you got to worry about. That's the stuff that I think really, really, really. I'll just look at it right now. I'm confident businesses have gone broke in that situation. I'm oh, legit. There is broken business owners out there who have huge regrets because of that situation. It was just on the horizon. The gold was just over the hill, but they didn't have the cash to get there and lost it all. Must yep. happen all the time. So that's what we really got to look for there. Um, oh, fascinating. And I, I mean, I'd, I'd love a yes or no answer from you. You probably won't give the a yes or no answer. I don't think that's ever happened. <laughs> Do you think negative gearing was a mistake? Do you think the impacts have done had an uh, inverse effect? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. And the reason I say it, and you're right, it's not a yes or no answer. <laughs> <laughs> the reason It'd be a boring I, podcast if it was. Uh, so. Totally. The reason I say I'm not sure is um, because in order to answer that, you'd need to really analyze the holistic impact on property economics over the last 30 years. And what... Uh, like there's a kind of a couple of things. So what it, what negative gearing did, right or wrong? Like like I don't, I am obviously anti negative gearing, but it did encourage or create. Let me just rephrase that. It created an environment where more people started investing because they got told, oh my god, I can save on tax. And through investors, like investors drive markets a lot. You know, like they're like. They, they are the they're the ones that start stimulating growth in an area and start gentrifying an area before owner occupiers do. Now, investor activity might not have been the same. It'd be very hard thing. You'd have to go and reverse engineer the whole whole kettle of fish. I don't think it's a good strategy. I'll just be really clear. Oh, sorry. Let me rephrase that. I don't think it's a good strategy for most people. I think it has a place when you're at a certain point in your journey and you have the wealth and capital to tolerate it and to support it. And I think in, in that case, 
awesome. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, I'd love to own a unit block in Bondi. And one of my goals is to build up enough cash flow in my portfolio that I can live the life I want and also still own a unit block in Bondi. Um, so that's something I've thought about. So I, I do think it has a place. However, I think the biggest mistake that, um, that has happened is that average investors were told and sold that it was the pathway to financial freedom. And nothing could be further from the truth because I don't understand and I cannot, I cannot find a logical explanation of how buying something that is a cash liability is going to give you more cash, more time and more freedom, which is ultimately, and I've spoken to, I've spoken to hundreds and hundreds of investors, literally and universally, every single one wants the same Thing. It doesn't matter whether they've. It doesn't matter whether they've got a ten million dollar company that's producing, you know, a million dollars net profit, or whether they're a first time investor. They all want the same thing: more time, more freedom, more money. It's very simple, super simple. I just cannot fathom a situation where it's the right choice to then go and buy something which is going to cost you more money every year and every every day and every week and every month. So I think that there is a mistake there in where it's how it's been positioned in the common vernacular. Um, but the function of negative gearing, I don't think, is technically a bad thing because if you if you uh, operate at a loss, then the government is saying, "Well, look, we'll compensate you for your loss." And the same thing happens in business; you get tax credits and stuff like that. And I think when you look at it objectively to that degree, I think it can be a good thing because there's a government supporting system which is saying, "Look, we get it, you know, and we'll support that loss because there's a total gain to be made, and we want to support the prosperity and of our of our society." And I think that. that that holds true and it holds credence, but uh, yeah, I don't. I don't think it's a strategy for most people. Interesting, very interesting. As I said, I've been watching this doco. I'll send it across, but it's like when you look back to '85 and the intention they had for it. Like I look at the purity of the intention. Hmm. It's like sweet. We need Australians to buy homes to support the rental market, so there's not immense government housing. I go great. The mum and dad investors end up from there. Also helps people that may not be able to invest because of the holding costs get started and these properties will go positive and when they sell them, there's capital gains. Like I see the side of it. Yeah. I just don't think they could have ever had the foresight into what it would become or how yeah. it would be used. Or I mean, maybe we need to hire their marketing company. Like who are the people that got behind Negative Gear and can they come and work for us and our businesses? They did a great job. They popularised it. Yeah, you just yeah, you need to find one of them. Like, if you ever have a failing business, you're just gonna go and <laughs> go, and, go and pitch it as a negative gearing strategy. No, no, that's great. It'll make money in the long run if you just hold it long enough. So, um, where 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 to next, Charlie? Oh, well, I tell you what, we've still got more of these to cover. So this is what I'm kind of thinking, Goose. We might end this episode because there's still quite a few and we might need to do a part two on property business models. How do you feel about that? I, I think that that's good because there's a lot of there's a lot of room to breathe here and I think that there's I think there's a lot of interesting stuff because in case you can't tell, anytime you ask me a question, it probably takes me about 10 minutes to answer. So the more that we can kind of dig into all of these uh, types of things, I think the more that we're going to be able to... Uh, deposits gold uh, bits of information in the way people think. Now, the, the the goal for for me with this podcast and the Investor Lab as a whole is to is to transform the way people think about real estate. And I think that it would be remiss for us to just brush over it and say, "Oh yeah, so yeah, commercials for cash flow, and you should do this uh, when you're at stage three or something like that." I think we really need to talk about why and and really give people their fundamental understanding to be able to 
see things in a new view and to actually see things for what they are, which is typically not what your eyes see initially. The way I think about it, and I know this might sound a bit odd, is I feel like most people are playing the property game like a piece on the chessboard rather than the player. I think they're like just the pawn or just the horse and they're just trying to look at one move without considering what the other pieces can do or be to win the game. Yep. I know that sounds weird, but like that was kind of like how I thought about it. What I would love people to take from this is to start going or thinking that the first step is just understanding the different players on the board. Like you really need to start with that or speak to experts so that you can get an idea of like which move or which type of uh, chess piece might fit into your strategy to win at that. Yeah, totally. To that degree as well. I mean, the way that you could kind of even expand on that is checkers and chess are played on exactly the same board. But if you try and play chess using the moves you know out of checkers, you're going to lose simply, right? You're not, it's not going to happen. And and understanding how to you know, how to interlace these two different games uh, on the same board, I think is is where it's at. Awesome, Goose. Well, let's wrap this one up from here. Part two of Property Business Model is coming soon. Awesome. Thanks, guys.